Today's reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're visiting today or new to the church today, we are right in the middle, week two of three, of this uh, short uh, three-week topical series we're calling uh, Life Together. The title is taken from Diedrich Bonhoeffer's classic work on community church life that he wrote called Life Together. It's an exploration of that Christian community. And we began looking at who we are as a church last week, who we are as a church, with the goal of answering questions like this. What does it look like to live in a Christian community? The church, and in this local expression here at Bethany Church. Remember last week we finished up chapter 2 of Ephesians, and I wrote a little summary statement for us to unpack uh, real quick. This is what we kinda, where we end, landed the plane last week. We are a people who were once far off from God and each other, who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus to form a new reconciled family, living out of a new gospel, unified culture by the power of the Spirit. That's a quick snapshot summary of all last Sunday's sermon. I try to boil it down for us. Just to, as we're in the middle of just a three-week series, I thought it'd be good to do that. In other words, the church is God's plan A for the world. Do you believe that? The church is God's plan A for the world and for your life. There is no plan B. 
The church is God's plan A, and it's always been his plan. That's what God is doing in the world that we see in this summary statement. He's saving a people. He's bringing a people in to a new family, a new body to experience unity. So that, Ephesians 3, the passage in between our passage today, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's a big calling, isn't it? That's a big calling that through the church, the wisdom of God would be made known. We're going to display the manifold wisdom of God. Do you ever just stop and look at church life and think, are you sure, God? Are you sure? Are you sure this is the best plan? You want to use us? You want to use me to display the gospel message? Your wisdom to the world? I mean, think about this for a moment. The plan of salvation, the core reason we exist from the moment Jesus left the earth, has been put into our hands. It's been put into the church's hands. The church to unite for this purpose. When you look at local expressions of the church, sometimes we don't see a lot of unity, do we? We see what you might even call the opposite. A disunity. People fight sometimes, don't they? Churches make mistakes, don't they? Sometimes leaders in those churches do bad things, don't they? They cause disunity and pain. But this is where God has chosen to work out his plan of salvation. Uh, I've got a couple quotes today from Ray Ortland. It's from a book we're reading with our men's group. Here's what he said about it. The church, he said, coming up on the screen, you'll see it. The unity, it's coming up. The slide, we'll get it. There it is. The unity of the universal church becomes our actual experience in the unity of a local church. In our local churches, what we share goes beyond our experiences with Christians in general. Being part of a church frees us from vague idealism and gives us traction, a place, a place for real gospel advance that will matter forever. He's saying, yes, we're united generally, all Christians of all time, but in the local churches where you see it lived out. And your idealized view of church gets kind of jumbled up a bit, doesn't it? When you start to live in real community with real people. It only takes a little time, doesn't it, to live in a church community to rid, rid us of that, what he called it, vague idealism about unity. Church life is hard. Church life is hard. Church life can be messy. And it's good to say that and to acknowledge that. We have to say that. We have to acknowledge that. And to that, we all bring a very uh, definite and idealized version of what we think Christian community should look like. And sometimes we get skittish, don't we? Maybe the first sign of trouble or something happens. Well, this can't be uh, my church. They've got issues. They still sin. <laughs> I would say, welcome to the bride of Christ. <laughs> That's the church. It saves sinners. Or as Bonhoeffer said in Life Together, he said it's actually really good to have those idealized uh, visions disappear. Here's what he said from his, that book that I've uh, quoted. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual, to a community, the better for both, he said. Every human wish dream that's injected into Christian community 
is a hindrance, actually, to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. What's he saying there? We can have idealized visions of really anything, can't we? Whether it's church, marriage, family, a relationship, a job, and they don't always measure up, do they? Life is hard. And the sooner we realize that, we're able to actually live in the actual reality rather than what we just really think it should be. This is not an excuse, though, to minimize those hard things that do happen, those sinful things that happen in church. But it is to say that when those seasons come along, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. By the power of the Spirit, we use the gospel. And in all seasons, we prepare to be ready. We make every effort. Or as our passage says today, Ephesians 4.3, be eager. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're called to be eager. So what? that's what we'll do today. We're going to make this transition from gospel doctrine of chapter 2 to the gospel culture in chapter 4 in Ephesians. From what God has done, what we must do. From, you might say, indicative to imperative. It's imperative that you do this because of the indicative this. That's what we're doing today. We're going to look at four imperatives this morning to see what our united life looks like together or what Paul hopes it'll look like. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it. Bible's open. We won't cover everything in this passage today. Uh, we're not doing a walk through the book of Ephesians, but we will do a flyover and cover, uh, uh, do more of a summary under our theme of life together. Let's look at our first imperative. Our united life together is a call, as Paul is going to show us, to character and conduct, to a, a way of living in the Christian church. Our united life, it's a call to character and conduct. So Paul, after unpacking all this gospel truth in chapter 2 that we looked at, we did that whole chapter, after unpacking, he says, here's your salvation. Here's the glorious uh, death-to-life experience, remember baptism, death-to-life experience, God has enacted. Here is who the church is now. Verse 1 says, now therefore, because of all this glorious, uh, true, beautiful doctrine, therefore now, live this way. I urge you, he says, to live into your calling. Because of, now therefore, go live this way. Verse 1 says that. Urge you to live into your calling. What is God? called you to? What has he called you to? There's a manner, a way in God's family, as Paul says, in which you should walk or live every day that promotes unity. Paul gives us five, five descriptive words here in this passage, verse 2. Humble is one. Gentle, patient, uh, bearing with one another, and all covered under the banner of love. The first two go hand in hand. Let's talk about them real quick. Humble and gentle, these first two. These were not popular characteristics in Paul's day, and they're really not today either, are they? Humility, gentleness, they were not popular, and the humility Paul describes is having a humble mind that thinks the best of others. How easy is it to assume the worst, isn't it? Don't we assign motives all the time? I do it all the time. 
Somebody does something, and I just think, oh, well, they're just doing that. They just want to frustrate me. They just want to frustrate me. They're doing that. I just assign motives when I don't really know their heart motive most of the time. Isn't that, would you say that's accurate? We don't really know somebody's heart motives. This mindset that Paul talks about says, assume the best. Maybe until it's proven otherwise, but assume the best. See the best in others. Think the best in others. See their worth. See their value. Apart from their usefulness. Apart from their accomplishments, apart from what have you done for me lately, see their value apart from that. That's a mindset I, that we live in, don't we? What have you done for me lately? How have you uh, lit, built me up or, or, or served me? He says, no, no, no. They have value just because they're in God's family. That's the humility, that humble mind. And this gentleness is the absence of needing to have a mindset that asserts yourself. Assert yourself above and over others, your rights, your strength, your domination, all, all terms that, you know, we hear our culture a lot today. My rights. This mindset thinks opposite. Gentleness. It's not weakness. We hear that and we think weakness. Jesus was the most gentle man, but we wouldn't describe him as a weak man. Gentleness is really Somebody who knows they're strong and has the strength, but has it under control and uses it appropriately, not for self-gain, but for others. That's what this gentleness is that Paul is talking about. And it goes hand in hand with humility. They go together, and you probably can't have one without the other. And I think what Paul's giving us here, he's giving us a picture, maybe you're thinking, of Christ. You catch it in his wording even. Kind of sounds like Philippians. You see the verse coming up. Have this mind from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God. Is that strength? That's strength. He's God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? He became a servant by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death. Picture Jesus for a moment from the Gospel of Mark that we've just been going through the last year. The Gospel of Mark, he's God in flesh. The creator of humanity who could at any moment have, with those 12 disciples, just demanded worship. By the, uh, the pointing of a finger, they could have fallen flat on their faces in front of him. That's who they were dealing with all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And yet he was so humble with them, with them. He was so gentle with them. It was just a a meekness and a mildness and a gentleness. And he was always bringing them along, not squashing them under his thumb. He was bringing them along. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Let's go. That's the mindset that Paul's pointing us to. And he's working that in us, the church. Because those qualities of humility, of gentleness, they're essential to what Paul's wanting here. Unity. Unity. Not divisiveness, not division but unity. They're opposed to those qualities that we'd say are prideful, proud, which is disruptive. It's self-seeking. It's destructive to unity. I mean, think of the people in your life. The people you like to spend time with are the ones who listen to you, right? The ones who make you feel appreciated and taken seriously, who, who respect you just for being another fellow human. Now, when you get around somebody who's totally dismissive 
and you're having a conversation, you know, like, they are a million miles away. <laughs> they're not even here. They're going like this, but you just know they're a million miles away. They're not listening to you. Um, dismissive, hyper-opinionated, showy, cocky. What do we do? We tend to steer clear, don't we? It's, life is that way. It's divisive. Not so in the church, Paul says. Humility, gentleness, but even so, he says, be patient. Bear with one another when we see those things coming to the surface. We know when Jesus saves and he brings people together, he brings together an unlikely group of people. Think about that for a minute. When he brings together and saves his people, he brings together an, an, an unlikely group. And it's okay to say it. We probably wouldn't all choose to hang out with one another, apart from the common faith we have that Paul's going to get to in a minute. It's okay to say that. We probably wouldn't choose everybody in here as a best friend. It's a big group of different people, different personalities, different walks of life, different backgrounds, and that's okay. That's actually the whole point what God is doing. He's bringing together people from all different walks and lives and personalities and strengths and weaknesses. And there are going to be challenges. There are going to be people who will rub you the wrong way in the church. It's just the way life is. So don't be surprised when it happens at church. Paul says, you have to have patience, bear with one another. He says it for a reason, right? He wouldn't just throw that in there. He knows. There's going to be challenges at church. It's awkward. Let's say that too. It's awkward to walk up to somebody for the fifth time in the gathering place to strike up one of those initial conversations again, isn't it? That's only me? Oh, that's just me. Okay. I'm going to work on my social skills, I guess. <laughs> it's all of us. You know that. Some of us it's harder for than others. It's awkward. That's okay. We push through that because you know what? The sixth time, you might really break through with that person. I can, I can kind of trust this guy now. He's actually noticed I'm here more than three weeks. And you end up hearing something, you're able to speak some truth, encourage, pray for one another. It's okay to say it. It's awkward. That's life together. It's life together. Think of Jesus with the 12. That patience, that forbearance. We talked about his gentleness, his meekness. Think of Jesus again with the 12 he, as he was with them. So patient. I mean, how many times we think of, we saw Peter through the Gospel of Mark. Again? Again, Peter? Again, Peter, and Jesus is there patiently with them for most of the time. He's there saying, gently guiding them to the truth, guiding them to revealing who he is to the good, to the beautiful, to the true. He gently and patiently works with them in forbearance. This week in our prayer meeting, Wednesday, we'll continue praying these things for our church. But ask ourselves this question. When was the last time you prayed this? For yourself or for our church. And I'm self-revealing here too. Spirit, make me humble for the sake of unity in my church. Spirit, make me gentle, make me patient for the sake of my church. Or in our, with our kids or with our spouse or with my neighbor or that girl or that guy at church. Spirit, make me humble. We don't say that prayer a lot, do we? I don't at least. But that's what God desires for us. This is the foundation Paul's laying for unity in the church. It's imperative we pursue it together, which means we have to talk about it. We have to address it. We have to pray for it. 
It also means that if there's someone in the church you can think of where your unity has been lost, I encourage you, pursue that person. Bring back unity. Address the wrong. Offer the sorry. Ask for forgiveness. It's that worth it, the unity of, of the church. Because the gospel's at stake, isn't it? Our unity is centered around Jesus and his message. And so when we have disunity, it's not just internal hurt, but it's external. It's for the sake of the gospel. What people see and what they hear and what they know. And unity, as we're going to look at our second imperative, it's what we see in God. That's why Paul asks us to pursue it. The unity we see in the Trinity, it's not just Paul's idealized vision, his own vision of the church. Here's our second imperative. Our united life together comes from a united triune God. That's where this idea comes from. It's not just Paul saying, hey, I, I travel as a missionary. I really would like to like, walk away, Ephesus, and know you're okay. You're, you're stressing me out. It's too much work. Here's, here's a, a five steps to be unified. No, no, no. Paul says this is who God is, and this is who he's making us into. He's the united triune God. In verses 4 through 6, Paul says one, I think, in there, like seven or so times, one God He's one God in three persons, and he's united, too, in his purpose of making us like that, too. We have a triune God. Yes, one God, but three persons. He's got a relationship, and he's absolutely unified, united in Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Spirit, one Spirit that Paul talks about in these verses, 4 through 6, who makes this one body. We're brought back into life and into the spiritual family by the Holy Spirit. That's his job. But he says, one Lord in verse 5. That's Jesus who gives us that one hope, that one faith, that one baptism that we do. But then he mentions God the Father too. One God who is Father who's making a family. And so you see that. They have different responsibilities even. Father, Son, and Spirit. They have different responsibilities, and yet there's one God with one purpose of making us unified too. That's where it comes from. It's our God. And so in a real spiritual, invisible sense, you would say there's one church because there's one God. And God is unified. And as impossible it is to rip apart the Trinity, it's as impossible to un- or divide the church in an invisible spiritual sense. And you can only be saved through this one God And so there's one way to be unified. So the church truly can never be divided. Yet Paul gives us a warning in verse 3, doesn't he? A warning that unity has to be maintained, he says. It has to be maintained. Why would he give us this warning? Let's take a look at verse 3. He says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain this unity. Because while the spiritual unity of the church, that we're all one body, all around the world, and through all history, all Christians, is real, the visible unity of a local congregation, real flesh and blood relationships, the people next to you in the pew, they need to be cultivated. they got to be maintained, cared for, Because he wouldn't warn us unless there's a real danger of that unity being threatened. As he says, be eager to maintain this. 
that word eager, when you, what does it make you think of? Like, like intentionality, a seriousness, uh, an attitude of eagerness, you might think. I love how this commentator, Marcus Barth, what he said about this word. He said, it's actually, it's hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in that, that eagerness, that underlying Greek verb, he says. He's referring to eager. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort is in that word. Of the whole man is meant, involving his will, his sentiment, that's feelings, reason, physical strength, and total attitude. In the imperative mood, it means an ongoing, it excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude. Yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You're you're to do it. Mean it. Such are the overtones, he says, of this verse. That eagerness we're supposed to have. That's, That's strong, isn't it? That's vivid, isn't it? Be eager to maintain the way this uh, commentator describes that, that word. It's all of us, he says, who we are. Be eager. I want to make this really practical, this idea of unity. And not just the invisible unity of the church, or invisible, but the visible too. Bethany Church now. Our unity, us being together. We're not going to mention everything, but a few other things. Have you ever thought about why we do some of the weird stuff we do here? Have you ever thought about that? I like the, I'm a big proponent of the why behind things. Because we can just do things like, why are we doing this? This is weird. This is new. This is strange. What is this? Have you ever thought about that? Even in our worship services, why do we read stuff together out loud? Scriptures, those creeds, that benediction. I mean, surely it's easier and more practical just to have one person read it rather than having us try to all read something together, and sometimes half of us are ahead, and sometimes we're a word behind. If you're in the front, you've heard me flub many benedictions. I do. You know, it's like it's just easier. It would be much easier for one person, as we do sometimes with our Scripture reading, that's why we do that, just to stand here and read it. Why do we do that? Auditory, visible unity. It's not just some random thing the church has always done. Audible, visible unity. So we read it together. Why do we stand when we sing? Does David just want us to burn a few extra calories? I mean, that's great. We'll take it. But no, we stand to sing. And why do we do it together with our voices? Again, audible, visible, unity, all doing it together. Same thing. Why do we sing songs together? One unified voice coming from the congregation. Why do we stand once a month together and drink this weird little cup of juice? Have you thought about that? It's weird. If somebody walks in here and doesn't know about it, they would look and go, what are they doing? Why do they like to hand out little cups? You know, we walk around with little cups and we drink together. Why do we do that? It is. It's okay to say that. Instead of taking it by ourselves, why do we do it together? Unity. Unity. That's why we stand together at the cup. It's unity. We're in this together. Why do we say thanks be to God after reading the scripture? We do it together. It promotes unity. We're here together. We're thankful together. It's a message for the whole church, not just me as an individual. So we do it together. Why do we do this thing called covenant membership here? You hear, you hear us talk about that. But why does Pastor Jeff always talk about it? Covenant membership. Isn't it just like membership? That's something like old time and old churches do. Isn't it antiquated and 
outdated and out of step with culture. It's a shepherding tool that churches have been using for millennia to promote unity. Have you ever looked at our covenant membership material? It's not a power play by some group of leaders hoping to control the sheep. It's gospel-infused material that eagerly talks about unity, if you've read it. Patience and unity in the Spirit. How about our life groups? It's a pain to get your house ready every week. And to plan out your schedule so 30 weeks out of the year, you've got one night in your week set aside to be with this group of people. Sometimes brand new people. Sometimes people you've never met. Sometimes people you wouldn't choose. And always people who are different from each other. Why do we do it? Unity. Community. Relationships. What are you eagerly doing in your life to promote that unity here at Bethany Church? Eagerly. Remember what he said about that word. Paul's, it's Paul's call. It's God's call to us. This isn't the pastor's motivational speech. This is the word of God. Be eager to pursue that unity. Those are some of the ways we do it at Bethany Church. There's others. We only mentioned a few this morning. It's like the oil in an engine. Think about that for a minute. Those of you who worked on cars, mechanics, if you put, want to put the oil in after the engine seizes up, are you too late? You're too late. It's gone. It's gonzo. It's done. You know, these things we do as a church, they're not flashy, they're not sexy. Some would say they're weird, inconvenient, repetitive, old-fashioned, but these simple little things, we might call them spiritual practices, when they're done together in a community for a lifetime, they're powerful. They're life-changing. They're counter-cultural. They're, 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 they're unity-building for the life of a church why. Leads us to our third imperative. Just in case you're beginning to feel like, this is kind of creepy, this unity. Like, are, are we even individuals sitting here in this church? Or are we just one amoeba? You know, you might be thinking. No, we are. Here's our united life together, imperative three. Our un united life together is expressed in diverse gifts. We'll see it coming up, point three. For the uh, purpose of every member ministry. That's where Paul's going. Our united life together, it's expressed in diverse gifts and people for the purpose of every member of ministry. If we were doing a full series on the book of Ephesians, we would go slower through this section. Um, but we're not. And maybe someday we will go through the book of Ephesians. And so we, we'll, we'll go kind of quickly through it and, and get as much as we can. Well, while unity is, uh, you know, is of utmost importance, Paul says in these verses, Jesus who descended, I think, which means to earth. Some have taken that to maybe mean to hell. I don't take it that way. But to earth has now ascended. When he left, when he left, he gave every believer now, every believer, by the power of his spirit, unique gifts. That's every single believer. He's given some kind of unique gifts, or even in the plural, gifts. When I was in college... <clears throat> I knew this girl who uh, kind of came into our college group who was interested in Christianity and the church. She was really interested. And she came to our college group, and she was great because she just would 
She'd ask a lot of questions. She wasn't afraid to ask questions. And uh, just kind of throw it out there. And what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And um, one day she said to me, I kid you not. She said, you know, Jeff, you remind me of the character from that Dostoevsky novel called The Idiot. Oh, well, thanks, I said. You know, okay, thanks, you know. And really, as our conversation went on, she wasn't just talking about me. She was talking about the church and her experience with the church up to that point. And I thought, well, what does she mean by that? So I went and looked, and, you know, the character in that book, and remember, she was talking not about me, but the church, after I kind of fleshed it out with her. At first glance, the idiot, he seems really simple. Seems to lack social experience. Uh, simply be content, almost in a way they, that's ignorant. They call him the idiot in the book. Everybody does it one time or another. But as the book goes on, upon further examination, when the characters get below the surface with the idiot, they begin to realize something. They begin to discover his simplicity, his ignorance was really just an inner peace. And his humility and his gentleness and his patience and this love he had was really because he held on to something bigger than himself, the truth. And you should come into the church and kind of thought, well, they're all just a bunch of idiots. <laughs> all the same. You know, they just thought, oh, it's, ch- yeah, it's the church, you know, the, that's the church. They're all the same. But when she got to know some of the individuals, she saw something beautiful. A diversity in love and in gifts and in acts of service saved individuals who were part of this unified body. She'd only seen the unity on the surface. Once she got under it, oh, it's not just this simplistic ignorance. There's a lot under the hood. There's a lot going on. And she was willing to take the time, and it was actually, a, I guess, a backhanded compliment to the college group that she'd kind of gotten to know. And this is what Paul's saying here. Yes, we are a united group, and we hopefully all believe the same things, at least the core things, but we aren't just a bunch of uh, you know, homogenized robots, are we? I believe that, you know, that we just parrot something. This is who we are. You know, that's not who we are. When you get underneath the surface, we're each given a unique gift. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a wide variety of gifts mentioned in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, our passage here. And they're not exhaustive, I don't even think, those lists. All kinds of gifts mentioned from teaching to serving, administrating, encouraging, pastoring, prophesying, wisdom, knowledge, healing, tongues, faith, all these things. Helping, guidance, another one. It's an incredible diversity. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have a gift. Gifts. That's what Paul is saying here. And here he mentions the teaching gifts of the church, I think, is that nothing builds up, which his theme is build up. Nothing builds up the body, which is that metaphor, like the teaching in a local body. Gospel doctrine produces gospel culture, remember last week? But here's the purpose, in particular, of the teachers, preachers, and pastors. Look at verse 12. The purpose, to equip the saints for 
the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the purpose. So that everyone, every member, all of us will minister. So that every member will have a a place, a ministry. Do you view yourself as having spiritual gifts that your neighbor next to you needs? That we all need? That your neighbor next to your house needs? Everyone who has the Spirit has by Christ's grace something this local body needs. In all my years of ministry, I've had lots of conversations with people. Over time, sometimes people drift away, whether it was my college ministry as part of, or youth ministries, or adult ministries, and had conversations where I've seen and people said, I've often said, oh, we miss you, come on back, you know, to encourage, and I mean that. We miss you, come on back. And inevitably, it's only natural, the response usually is, is, I know I need to be there, I'm missing out, I know I need to be fed, Uh, something along those lines. It's totally understandable, and it's true, but we need you too. Have you thought about that? The body needs you too. When somebody disappears or drifts away, yes, you're missing out, but we're missing out too by your absence. This local body's missing out when you're not here too, if this is true, that Christ has given us all gifts. It's, we're missing out too. It goes both ways. We thought that through. We don't think that way. It's usually kind of what I'm missing out on. But we're missing out too when somebody drifts away or disappears from Bethany Church. You know, there have been some historically distorted images of the church. Images that have tried to describe and, and, and help uh, talk about what the church is that have sort of bred this one-sided view of the church. Like, when I'm not there, I'm missing out. Here's the first one. Church is like a pyramid. A couple images to help us. The church is like a pyramid model. And the pastor sort of perched at the pinnacle, like a, a special saint or some pope. And the lay people are there below in a series of ranks to serve. The pyramid model. It's absolutely unbiblical, not only because we've got a plurality of elders in the, in, the, in the Bible, but we've also got every member ministry that we're talking about today. You have a role in our church. Here's another one, the, the bus driver one. The, the pastor's driving the bus, which would be fun, but it's, and the people are in the bus, and they're all there together in the back of the bus, uh, and, and the congregation's kind of peacefully along for the ride totally unbiblical. What is Paul showing us? What image is he giving us? The body. He's giving us an image of, and we got a picture of the body. The body. That's the image he wants us to see. The biblical image is clear here. Yes, pastors and elders may lead and teach in unique ways, care for the flock, but with the intent purpose of the body. All of us being built up for every member ministry. Now, that doesn't mean your ministry even is officially part of a Sunday morning or Sunday school or life group. It may be, and for many should be, but it's so that we grow up and to see that all of our life can be ministry. You're used in the church, you're used outside the church, and that we'll exercise these gifts. Imagine, 
Imagine this body now. And it's time for this body to come write its name. Sign a document. And the hands are gone. What do we do? It's time for this body now to kick the ball. And we look, where's the foot? The foot's gone. Or it's time for this body to show some mercy. And you're like, where's the heart? It's gone. We all need each other. It's one body. You've got a gift if you're a follower of Christ, and he wants you to use it. And we miss out, and you do to get as well when we drift apart. Here's our fourth imperative, our last one. We're united. This life together is to grow into Christ, into Christ through truth and love. We'll spend our shortest time here, and may even hit on this a little next week as we're going to finish up chapter 4. So Paul elaborates then. As we're built up, as we're maturing, we're, we are built up to grow into, with our gifts being used in the church, until, see that in verse 13, it's ongoing, until we all attain the fullness of Christ. Christ himself and Christ's likeness. We're to know and trust and, and grow up into Jesus. So we have to talk about him every week. If we don't mention Jesus every week, we're missing something. So if we don't, say something. I encourage you to. We're, that's who we're to grow up into. That's why we say gospel so much. That's why we talk about Jesus so much. This is where we're going. This is where God is taking us into Christ-likeness. And it's something that can change. You can grow. Something to continue to pursue and attain. It means there's different levels of maturity. You, and you can be a part of how that proceeds in your own life and the process and speed at which it goes. Our fellowship and unity is around Jesus and the gospel, who he is, what he's done, what he will do, the truth he's proclaimed. So Paul knows it's easy to drift. It's so easy to drift, whether it's a church an organization, family, a school, a business, and you only ever drift one direction. You don't drift towards God. You don't drift towards going deeper into the truth. You always drift away from God. It's just the way it works. You don't drift towards Him. You're like kind of like the bottle. It's not the imagery there. You're like on the sea being tossed to and fro when you drift, when you detach from the body, you're like an unmoored ship without a pilot. You drift. So how do we avoid drifting and grow? Simple, but profound. Truth in love. Truth in love. Look at verse 15. Rather than drift, like a, on a, like a boat on the sea, Believing just whatever you hear, rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, that's into Jesus, into Christ. Truth and love. There are certain foods that go together. Help me out. Peanut butter and? All right. Bacon and? Spaghetti and? Grilled cheese and? Ah, yes. Okay, a couple of you guys. You got it. Tomato soup. For Paul, it's truth 
and love. They're like the peanut butter and jelly. They're better than that, but truth and love. That's how we grow. They have to go together. We'll talk, as I said, more about it next week. Let's look at a quote to close today from John Stott. What if they separate? What if they divide? What happens? Well, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, peanut butter and jelly, which she says should not be difficult for a spirit-filled believer since the Holy Spirit is himself, the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is love. Our engine runs on spirit-produced truth and love, which hopefully should make us breathe ah, a sigh of relief. We're not going to put the oil in ourselves. It's the Spirit. And He's here. He's alive. He's active. He's living in your life now if you're a follower of Jesus. He's given you gifts, and He's going to make sure we all move towards that unity together in truth and love. And we grow more mature or less as we gauge and see how much truth and love is here. We can impact it. May Jesus Christ produce in us, as we wrap up this series even next week, more truth, more love, more truth, more love, by the power of his Spirit. And don't ever underestimate your importance in this body. Don't ever underestimate that. You matter here. You've been given a gift here. God is going to use you here if this is your church home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.